Hello, everyone, and welcome to the September 5th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Skirn & Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal remanded an applicant's case to give her a second chance to prove her disability after the WCAB admitted error. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Singh versus the WCAB and the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Dr. Singh was employed as a physician with the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation at the North King Kern State Prison in Delano, California. She claimed to have suffered an industrial injury to her psyche in 2013 following a fire marshal order to close the examination room doors while examining inmates. The QME, Dr. John Stahlberg, issued five medical reports regarding Dr. Singh. After hearing, the work comp judge found that the injury did not cause permanent disability and that Dr. Singh failed to meet the burden of showing entitlement to any period of temporary total disability. Dr. Singh petitioned the WCAB for reconsideration, contending primarily that she was entitled to temporary disability. The WCAB issued its own decision, finding that Dr. Singh failed to follow up with Dr. Stahlberg, the QME, and provide the requisite information for him to determine the period she was temporarily totally disabled. The WCAB accordingly agreed with the work comp judge and denied reconsideration. Dr. Singh then petitioned the Court of Appeal for a writ of review. Dr. Singh notes that the QME said she could return to work inside the prison with the reasonable accommodation of either leaving the examination room open or having a chaperone during examinations, and that the prison refused to accommodate her work restriction. The WCAB filed a letter brief with the Court of Appeals stating that it would admit error in its case and requested that the opinion and order denying reconsideration be annulled and that the case be returned to the board for further proceedings. The WCAB explained that she correctly pointed out in her petition for writ of review that where an employer fails to provide modified work to an injured employee, temporary partial disability is deemed total. The WCAB explained that the record appeared incomplete and that it may have improperly analyzed Dr. Singh's claim of temporary total disability. And the board expressed its desire to return the matter to the work comp judge for further proceedings. In response, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation said the matter should not be remanded because an applicant cannot complain about an error that she created. It further argued that any lack of an adequate record is invited error of Singh's own making by not further developing the record. The court granted the WCAB request to remand the case in the unpublished decision. The court said that the WCAB's failure to set forth its reasoning in adequate detail constitutes a sufficient basis to annul the decision and remand for a statement of reasons. The Arizona Attorney General sued Insys Therapeutics Incorporated, 
accusing the drug maker of engaging in a fraudulent marketing scheme aimed at increasing sales of a fentanyl-based pain medicine. The lawsuit accused Insys of paying doctors sham speaker fees in exchange for writing prescriptions of subsis without regarding for the health of the patients. The lawsuit also named three Arizona doctors as defendants who it said collected speaker fees from the company that generated more than $33 million in sales of the drug subsis, or 64% of all sales of the drug in the state of Arizona. The lawsuit comes during a series of federal and state investigations centered on Insys subsis opioid drug. The case is the latest to center on subsis, an under-the-tongue spray intended for cancer patients that contains fentanyl, a highly addictive and regulated synthetic opioid. Last December, federal prosecutors in Boston charged six former company executives and managers with engaging in a scheme to bribe doctors to prescribe the drug. Federal charges have also been filed in several other states against other ex-incis employees and medical practitioners who prescribe the drug subsis. Two former sales representatives, including the wife of its ex-chief executive, pleaded guilty in July 2017 to engaging in schemes to pay kickbacks to medical practitioners to prescribe a drug containing the opioid fentanyl. Incis had said that it is in talks with the U.S. Justice Department to resolve the federal probe. The Arizona-based drug maker previously agreed to pay a combined $8.95 million to resolve investigations by attorneys general in Oregon, New Hampshire, and Illinois. And now our crime report. A controversial genetic testing firm under federal investigation for healthcare fraud has been placed into court-ordered receivership, which is a form of bankruptcy. The CEO and founder of Prove Biosciences has also left the company. Prove Biosciences specializes in a DNA testing that the company claims can improve the effectiveness of pain management treatment and determine whether a patient is at risk of opioid addiction. Last June, FBI agents raided the company's headquarters in Irvine, California. Former and current employees who were interviewed said the agents were focused on possible kickbacks to doctors who encouraged patients to take Prove's DNA tests. Physicians reportedly could make $144,000 a year in kickbacks that were called research fees. In July, Prove was linked to a Medicare fraud case in which three Indiana healthcare providers allegedly caused Prove Biosciences to falsely and fraudulently bill various healthcare programs for the genetic tests that were not medically necessary. Prove was not named as a defendant in the Indiana case, but the CEO said Prove had cooperated with investigators. The CEO claimed that Prove received written and signed determinations of medical necessity supporting the tests ordered and billed to insurance carriers, just like every other laboratory which requires such a determination on a test. The CEO also defended Prove research published in the Journal of Addiction Research and Therapy, which claimed to show the effectiveness of its genetic tests. 
The publisher of the journal has been accused, however, by Federal Trade Commission of deceiving researchers and readers about the true nature of its publications and peer review process. According to the FTC complaint, the publisher has created hundreds of open access online medical journals that publish articles with little or no peer review. Researchers are also charged significant fees to get their articles published by a pay-to-play policy that some consider unethical because it diminishes the quality of academic journals and the peer review processes. Prove has aggressively promoted its generic genetic tests with healthcare providers around the country. And in regulatory news, Governor Jerry Brown has designated Catherine Zalewski, who lives in Richmond, as the chair of the California Workers' Compensation Appeals Board. Judge Zalewski served on the board since her appointment by Governor Brown in April 2014. Prior to her appointment, she joined the Department of Industrial Relations as a workers' compensation administrative law judge and advisor to the Division of Workers' Compensation from 2009 to 2011. And she served as the DIR chief counsel from 2012 to 2014. Prior to state service, she was senior associate at Schmidt Law Offices, manager and attorney at Pacific Coast Services, and worked at Express Network and Direct Legal Support Services. Earlier in her career, she was an attorney at the firms of Kinder and Werfel, Finnegan and Marks, and at Foreman and Brasso. Commissioner Zalewski earned a Juris Doctor degree from the University of California Hastings College, College of Law. This position requires Senate confirmation, and the compensation is $132,000. She was selected from a list of current WCAB commissioners, including Frank M. Bross, Deidre Lowe, Jose Razo, and Marguerite Sweeney. The DWC has posted a searchable database of liens dismissed by operation of law under the provisions of Labor Code Section 4903.05c2 or you may download the entire data set in Microsoft Excel format. The database follows the announcement of the dismissal of 292,000 unresolved liens owned by lien claimants who did not file a declaration verifying the legitimacy of liens for medical treatment or medical legal expenses. The newly available information is based on case records in Eames and is current as of August 15. The companion cases associated with these liens may not yet have been identified and added to the database. And in medical news, a new California Workers' Compensation Institute study tracks changes in the prevalence, volume, and strength of opioid prescriptions in California work injury lost time claims that involved a mental health component. And it compares those results to other indemnity claims that have no mental health component. The study used data from over 368,000 lost time claims for work injuries that occurred during the 10-year span ending in December 2016. Between one-quarter and one-third of California Works Comp indemnity claims had opioids dispensed within three months of the injury, and opioids were slightly less prevalent 
among the claims with mental health disorders during this acute injury phase. By 12 months post-injury, opioids were more prevalent in the claims with mental health disorders than in those without a mental health component. The average number of opioid prescriptions per claim was higher for injured workers with mental health disorders at all stages of claim development in all 10 accident years and widened as the claim aged. Claims with mental health disorders were more likely to have opioids introduced later in the claim. The average potency of opioids dispensed was significantly higher for injured workers with mental health disorders than for those without them. The CWCI has published its study as a spotlight report, and the public can access that report at its website. The initial event associated with exposure to prescription opioids has not been widely explored, but is often maintained to stem from an injury or surgical procedure. But, according to a study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Surgery, most of the events that led to sustained prescription opioid use were not hospital events and associated procedures, but instead diagnoses that were either nonspecific or associated with spinal or other conditions for which opioid administration is not considered a standard of care. The researchers used data from over 117,000 patients who had no use of prescription opioids for six months or more before receipt of a new prescription. Only 800 of these individuals, that is 0.7%, received their initial opioid prescription following an inpatient encounter, with four-tenths of a percent having undergone an inpatient procedure. The most common diagnosis associated with the initial opioid prescription for the entire group, which is 30.6%, was other ill-defined conditions. Spinal conditions were among the most frequent diagnoses in both civilian and military settings. Among specific categories of conditions associated with the initial opioid prescription, spine and orthopedic disorders were the most prominent. The authors concluded that improved adherence to best practices in opioid prescribing and requirements for better documentation of the rationale for such prescriptions may reduce the risk of sustained use. This suggestion seems like good advice for claims administrators as they review any request for authorization for an opioid medication. A recent U.S. study published in the journal Physical Therapy claims that inappropriate patient sexual behavior remains a common experience for physical therapists during their careers. More than 80% of nearly 900 physical therapists surveyed said they have encountered sexual remarks, touches, indecent exposure, and sexual assault. Almost half said they've experienced one of these situations in the past year, numbers that have not changed since the last major surveys in the 1990s. And U.S. healthcare professionals have 16 times greater risk for non-fatal violence at work than other fields or occupations. Prior to this new report, the most recent studies that focused specifically on patient sexual harassment and physical therapist was done in the United States, Canada, and Australia in the late 1990s. 
At that time, nearly 80% of therapists said they had experienced sexual harassment and one quarter of those reported psychological consequences such as anger, guilt, fear, anxiety, and depression. Now the research team surveyed 892 physical therapists and physical therapy students across the country recruited through physical therapy academic programs and the American Physical Therapy Association. About 80% of the participants were women and 60% reported working with patients who had dementia, delirium, or brain injuries. Most said they treated an equal number of male and female patients. Researchers found that 84% of survey participants had experienced inappropriate patient sexual behavior during their career, and 47% experienced it during the last year. Women reported significantly higher rates of harassment, especially staring, suggestive remarks, inappropriate touches, date requests, sexual gestures, and requests for sexual activity. Several factors increased the risk of experiencing inappropriate behavior, such as routinely working with patients with brain impairments and having fewer than five years of direct patient experience. Harassment was most common between a female therapist and a male patient. Treating mostly male patients increased the odds of harassment by almost 400%, and treating an equal mix of patients doubled the odds as compared to those who mainly treated female patients. Keenan Healthcare and actuarial consultant Millman released the 2017 results of their California Hospital Workers' Comp and Payroll Benchmarking Survey. The survey from 18 hospital systems and more than 44 individual facilities within California shows average losses paid per indemnity claim rose 2.9% annually over the past 10 years. While the landscape of providing health care in the United States is seemingly in flux, the workers' compensation environment in California has been surprisingly stable over the last several years. Looking forward, researchers expect longer-term trend rates closer to 5 or 6% a year to prevail with stronger medical and indemnity loss trends than in the recent past. And in other industry news, the growing trend of states working to legalize medical marijuana has created challenges in the workplace. However, according to Kevin Glennon, the Vice President of Clinical Education and Quality Assurance Programs at One Call Care Management, there are opportunities to implement best practices to manage the use of medical marijuana in workers' compensation. Among the challenges are the conflicts between state and federal laws, lack of evidence for the efficacy of medical marijuana, and risks posed to employee safety by medical marijuana. Glennon said that in workers' compensation, medical marijuana is predominantly requested to manage pain. However, payers rely on evidence-based guidelines when making coverage decisions. Without FDA approval or a large-scale randomized controlled human trial to demonstrate medical value, many payers are choosing to categorically deny coverage of medical marijuana. It's a catch-22 situation. Lack of evidence continues to hamper adoption, 
and yet clinical trials are not permitted under the current federal law. At the federal level, marijuana is categorized as an illegal substance and it is not FDA approved to treat any medical condition. Despite these restrictions, in the 23 states and the District of Columbia where medical marijuana is now legal, it is recommended for many medical purposes. In certain cases, court rulings could force carriers to cover medical marijuana for treatment. In a New Mexico case, a court ruled that a workers' compensation carrier must reimburse a 55-year-old former mechanic for medical marijuana used to alleviate pain from a work-related back injury. The ruling circumvented the carrier from directly paying for an illegal drug. The conflict between state and federal law will eventually need to be resolved, particularly for drug-free workplace and employment policies. In the meantime, organizations should stay abreast of new cases, judgments, and verdicts that could forecast further impact on policies. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.